Hello, and welcome to the Lend Hoping Nothing podcast. I'm Michael Humphreys, and this is episode one on what is usury. Today, I want to start a series of podcasts on usury, but uh, interspersed with some other topics so that we're not just talking about usury for the next several months. So um, let's go ahead and begin. So what is usury? This is an important question because there's a lot of divergent opinions about this. So some people, Father Thomas Devine, for example, in his book, Interest, considers usury to be taking advantage of the poor and loans. Others will consider usury to be any just excessive rates in loans. Famously, Belloc will consider usury to be interest on loans for consumption. And some people will say that any interest on any loan is usury. And some people will go so far as to say that usury is any surplus taken on almost any business or commercial economic exchange. So there's a lot of mutually contradictory opinions out there. So today I want to kind of go through the tradition and look at what usury actually is, what the traditional understanding is. So that takes us all the way back to the scriptures, to the Pentateuch in particular. And in the Hebrew, and I'm taking this from Father Divine's book, the Hebrew in the Pentateuch that talks about usury is masa and nesek. And this means to bite, to oppress, to take interest. And so there's a sense of which usury is sort of this act of oppression. We see this in Exodus where uh, we're to lend to the poor but not oppress them with usuries. In Leviticus, we are not to take usury from our brother. And Deuteronomy is a particularly controversial passage because it seems to allow for usury against foreigners. This is generally interpreted as something along the lines of divorce, where there's a certain tolerance of taking usury, not because it's permissible, but because of the hardness of hearts. Uh, Some of the church fathers will read this ultimately as saying that under the new law, we're all brothers. So this no longer even permits usury against foreigners because we are all brothers in Christ. Next, when we reach the prophets, we see in Ezekiel in particular... We see that... Uh, he condemns usury alongside several other uh, sins, such as murder, theft, idolatry, uh, adultery. And so Jerome particularly interprets this as all usuries are now forbidden. And he sees this as a step forward from the Pentateuch, where there's this certain tolerance. And then moving ultimately into the fullness of the gospel, where in Luke 6.35, our Lord Jesus says, lend hoping nothing in return, which is the namesake of this podcast. And this is taken as the kind of fullness of 
of Revelation. And there was a great deal of controversy among the medievals about this, whether it was a counsel or a precept to hope not for interest or usury on loans or to not even hope for the principal. But the main idea behind it was that lending is an act of charity. And so there's this more, this greater fullness to uh, the revelation. So now kind of moving to the church fathers, we see usury condemned unanimously. Some people dispute this and it's typically because they don't uh, read the texts fully, but it's pretty unanimous that the fathers condemn usury. So among the Greek fathers, we have Gregory of Nyssa, Basil, and Gregory Nazian. Some of these base their arguments against usury on kind of an Aristotelian sterility of money argument. It's important to note that this is an Aristotelian position rather than the position of Aristotle. Some have argued that this is not actually Aristotle's position. But in any case, this sort of sterility of money argument seems to suggest that they believe that usury was intrinsically evil because it's based on this nature of money. Now, intrinsic evil wasn't a central topic among the fathers, and it wasn't really considered until Augustine. So it doesn't come up in that phrasing, but it appears like they're saying something along those lines. Now, among the Latin fathers, we see, as I've already said, Jerome condemning all usuries. Uh, Augustine also does, but one of the most important developments in this doctrine comes with St. Ambrose uh, in his work, the De Tobia. And the reason this is, is because he begins to provide a definition that really starts to clarify. He doesn't give it as a formal definition, but the way he talks about usury provides uh, greater clarity on what he means and what the tradition also ultimately takes up. And so he talks about a lender giving money in a, specifically a mutuum to a merchant. And so he condemns this because the merchant is forced to commit fraud in his selling in order to pay the usuries. And he goes on to say that anything over the principal or the capital is usury. And the important thing here is that Ambrose is talking about usury in terms of the mutuum, and that it's anything over the what is given. And so this really links that notion of the, the, the scriptural massa and nesek to the Roman law concept of usura and mutuum. And we can kind of take this as that Ambrose really does mean and is referring to the Roman law in this, uh, specifically because first he studied Roman law, so he knew these contracts. He knew about usury in Roman law, but also he worked as a judicial counselor and a governor in the Roman Empire before becoming Bishop of Milan. Moreover, he, he references several other Roman law contracts. So the Hypotheca, the Pignus, the Fiducia. And so there's this sense in which he is really talking about 
Roman law contracts. And so he really is talking about the mutuum, which is specifically a Roman law contract. And we'll get into what the mutuum is in another podcast. But for now, let's, let's continue moving along. So between Ambrose and the medieval period later, there is, doesn't seem to be much development. Uh, there's various contracts um, and evidence of people contracting mutuum, sometimes including profit or interest. But uh, it's not until the 12th century where some of the canonists start picking up the study of Roman law again. They start picking up the mutuum and reading Ambrose, and they connect the dots again. And they say that usury is anything over the principle on a mutuum. And they'll go so far as to say usury is only found in a mutuum. And so here we have sort of the material component of the sin of usury, which is the mutuum, where the formal component is exacting uh, something over the principle. And so then usury is found only in the mutuum. And we see this uh, in these early canonists. Uh, this is also picked up by a lot of the early scholastics and doctors. So we see Bonaventure, St. Albert, St. Thomas Aquinas, all talk about it, usury, in these terms. They all kind of identify that it's in the mutuum contract. Aquinas is sometimes confused or read uh, in a confused way about this, but it's fairly clear that what he's talking about is the same as everyone else. So he specifically identifies the mutuum in his introduction to the question in the second part of the second part, question 78. He introduces that usury, which takes place in mutuum contracts. In the prior question, he was talking about the sin of cheating, which takes place, he says, in contracts of sales. And he uses the Roman law terminology for that as well. Also in the De Malo, he discusses a, a case where he says that uh, it is not usury because it doesn't involve a contract of mutuum. It actually involves a contract of hiring and putting out. So still we see in Aquinas, and I think to interpret him correctly, you have to talk about and think about the mutuum contract. So we have this clear idea among the early scholastics and even these doctors of the church that usury is exacting anything over the principle specifically on a mutuum contract. Moving into the later scholastics in the 15th, 16th, 17th centuries, we see the same thing. Looking at their works, they will all say something along the lines of usury is profit from a mutuum contract. They'll qualify this with some discussion about extrinsic titles, which we'll discuss later, but they all kind of agree on this. And in Bernard Dempsey's uh, work, Interest in Usury, he'll actually say basically everyone agreed about what usury was at this point. This kind of brings us up to the Fifth Lateran Council. And this is where some people will identify the sort of magisterial definition of usury. And so I think it's worth talking about. 
even though we'll, we'll discuss magisterial teaching in another podcast. And so the definition given in the council is, for that is the real meaning of usury, when from its use a thing which produces nothing is applied to the acquiring of gain and profit without any work, any expense, or any risk. Um, now, there, there's a few reasons I think that this definition doesn't have the authority of the council behind it, and even if it does, it's not helpful, or at least it's ambiguous enough to be misleading. So the first reason I don't think it has the authority of the council behind it is that the entire reason uh, behind this particular session of the council was discussing the Montes Pietatis. And these were essentially charitable pawn shops. So you would give some sort of good and receive a loan from it. The people who ran these uh, charitable pawn shops, who were typically Franciscan in many cases, would charge a very moderate interest on these loans. And so there was some dispute whether these, these loans were actually usurious or not. And particularly the Dominicans would argue against this. That was kind of the historical divide. The definition that I just kind of mentioned arises in the section where Leo X is actually describing the position of the Dominicans, those opposed to the Montes Pietatis. The council ultimately rejects their position. It seems like the council is rejecting that as well. So it, it's kind of hard to tell whether that is actually the position of the council or not. Next, we, we see among the kind of contemporary scholastics of the time that they don't actually cite the Lateran Council in defining usury. So a lot of the scholastics will cite papal bulls and councils as they're discussing usury or other topics, but here they don't with the Lateran Council, but it seems like this would be a good place to do that. So there, it doesn't seem that the even the contemporaries of the time took this as sort of an authoritative definition that was worth citing. Finally, the first place that I've seen this actually cited uh, by authors as the definition of usury uh, isn't until the late 19th or early 20th century by the neo-scholastics. And for example, uh, Dominic Prumer uh, cites this, but he incites it from um, a Jesuit's work on the kind of moral doctrines of the church. And so the problem with this is that this Jesuit Bucciarani, I think, uh, takes this definition out of context. So he just gives that one phrase and he doesn't give any other context to uh, the 10th session of the Lateran Council. And so this, this is really the only place it's, it's first brought up, and it's brought up out of context. So it, it doesn't seem, it seems unlikely that it is, has the authority of the council. But given, let's say for the sake of argument, that it has the uh, authority of the council. First thing I would argue is that it's a radically deficient definition. So it mentions only a thing which produces nothing. So what is that all about? 
Uh, it doesn't reference any sort of contract, whereas we've seen the entire tradition prior to the Fifth Lateran Council focuses on the mutuum contract. And then also what, what is meant by any work, any expense, any risk, because a mutuum always involves at least some risk, uh, because you have the risk of default, for example, which earlier scholastics rejected as an excuse for taking more than the principal. So there's a lot of questions around this, and so is it even helpful? The next thing I would argue was that exactly because of these ambiguities and deficiencies of the definition, it has to be taken within the context of the, um, of the tradition. And so it's not very helpful to use this definition. It probably can be interpreted in a way that kind of fits in with the rest of the tradition, but the, the rest of the tradition has much more weight behind it. And so the council uh, definition seems to have to fit into that because it's kind of a standalone definition. Now, when we get to the 18th century, we have the last kind of great encyclical, which is Vix Pervenit, which also defines usury, and it defines usury in, in a way consistent with the entire prior tradition that we've been discussing. And so I think even then, the council has to be interpreted along those lines. And so... Benedict the Fourteenth, in his encyclical, is trying to address some disputes that are arising and actually settle the question. There is some dispute about whether Vix Pervenet is uh, infallible. We'll get into that some other time. But he he really confirms what we've already been saying. So he says that the origin and source of the sin of usury is the mutuum contract. And he also reconfirms that it's just taking anything over the principle. He rejects some excuses. He talks about other contracts. But ultimately, this, this definition that we've already discussed, exacting anything over the principle on the usury or on a mutuum is, is the definition of, of usury. And so this kind of brings us to this sort of latest doctrinal development or doctrinal statement on, on usury. But there is a significant degradation, um, as we can tell from today, how different uh, those opinions I mentioned at the beginning are from this definition that we see has, you know, 1,700 years of backing behind it. And so part of this is the silence of the magisterium since Vix Pervenet. And even Vix Pervenet wasn't entirely accepted. Uh, and we see this uh, in some responses from the Holy Office in, eight, in the 1830s with dubia raised by French bishops. And they questioned whether, whether priests could absolve uh, manifest usurers. So these lenders would be giving out loans to businessmen, and they were of the opinion that this wasn't usury. And so the bishops were asking the Holy See, given that Vix Pervenet was applied to the entire church recently, whether those priests could continue absolving these usurers. Uh, it's an odd question because uh, Vix Pervenet actually explicitly rejects uh, the idea of taking more than the principal 
from a loan to businessmen just because they're businessmen. And, and so the response of the Holy Office is, let them not be disturbed. And that is, let those confessors who are absolving not to be disturbed. Uh, with the caveat that if the Holy See should make a decision, um, that they should uh, submit to that, the, the confessors. And there is some evidence that Vatican I was actually going to take up the question of usury uh, before it was uh, disrupted. Now, where is this opinion coming from, from the French bishops? So if we go back to the 18th century, around the time of Vix Pervenet, there was actually a Parisian priest, so a priest in Paris, uh, of the name Lecour, Lecour, I don't know, who tried to make the distinction between a mutuum consumptionis and a mutuum productionis. And if you're familiar with Belloc, this will sound very similar to what he teaches. But this kind of idea of being able to charge, and so he, he argues that you can charge for this sort of mutuum of production, but this is actually more or less rejected uh, by Benedict the Fourteenth uh, in Vix Pervenant. Um, so there, there is some degradation even at that point. But even going back farther, we see that this notion of being able to charge against uh, businessmen actually goes back to even to Cajetan, who tried to interpret uh, Aquinas as permitting a particular extrinsic title when the lender and the borrower were businessmen. Really, the expansion of extrinsic titles from that period like Cajetan, 15th century onward, really drove a lot of the, the degradation. So that in the late 19th century, you have a lot of silence from the magisterium. People are beginning to read uh, canon law, and there's a lot of ambiguity, uh, especially in the decretals of Gratian. And it seems like uh, usury is taking anything on any transaction, anything over the principle. So there's some of that degradation because people are making use of ambiguous sources. Um, there's this driven by some French priests and bishops. Um, there's also some other threads who are trying to argue that the mutuum is not actually, well, it's best understood as a sale. And so it's driven by, not by um, sort of the equality of thing for thing, as in quantity, but an equality of like just price, so an equality of value. And so there's some degradation as well as there. Also, some people start to argue that usury, uh, because of changes in the economic environment, uh, usury begins to take on this question of like, well, money is capital now, and so we can charge for it like we would other capital, so we can charge a rent on it, and so forth. So there's a lot of threads of degradation going on with this. But going back to the tradition, we see that the definition of the mutum con or of usury is exacting anything above the principle on a mutum contract. 
So in some future episodes, I'm going to discuss a few other things. So why is Ustream important? The magisterial teaching, digging into that. You know, what is this Mutuma and so forth. So we'll explore this in, in greater depth. But um, I think that's enough for today. So I thank you for, for listening. Um, all the citations and all the things that I, I quoted will be down in the show notes. If you have any questions, feel free to email me at lendhopingnothing at gmail.com. And I hope you have an excellent day. All right. Thanks.